Um, Let's turn now to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, as we continue our look at the Gospel of John that we began um, last summer. Uh, We, uh, last summer, uh, speaking of last summer, I took my girls to Six Flags in San Antonio. How many of y'all been to Six Flags in San Antonio? Quite a few of you, probably at least half. How many of y'all have ridden the Iron Rattler? Yeah, it was my hope last summer to take my girls to give them their first experience of a real roller coaster. Now, the Iron Rattler, when it came out, it was voted the second scariest roller coaster in the world. I didn't know that, taking my daughters in, my little 10-year-old and my 7-year-old. I thought, ah, they'll be able to handle it, no problem. We go early so that we can get through the line quickly and we we race up to the iron rattler we get right on board and we begin that first ascent you know that first ascent if you've ever been on a roller you know the first ascent right climbing up this hill well that's kind of what we've been doing in the gospel of john we've been on that hill going up growing up in Going up in tension and, and anxiety and also excitement a little bit, too, as to what's coming. All of the stuff in the Gospel of John has been building up. And today, at John chapter 18, we reach the top. Now, when me and my girls reached the top of the Iron Rattler last summer, I looked out and I looked across. We were way up there. And I looked across and I kind of went one of these and I said, uh-oh. I have way underestimated the Iron Rattler, and I think I have way overestimated my daughters. And as we began to go over, you can't, you can't see, I mean, it's straight down. And I was like, oh no, here we go. Now, that's where we are in the text. We have just, we have just, everything has built up, and now Jesus is going in to Jerusalem for his, uh, uh, sorry, no, it's Good Friday, okay? Good Friday is coming. The, the, The Passover meal has been eaten. They are getting ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Jesus and his disciples are nervous. We know from the other synoptic gospel accounts that Jesus is is pretty stressed out. He's actually sweating blood. This is a super stressful time. They are saying, oh no, here we go. We are about to descend into the the greatest evil that the world has ever known. Now, that wasn't the case. I'm going to finish the story for my girls, just so you know. That wasn't the case. I did scar them for life, but um, they just won't ride roller coasters anymore. So... um, But here we go, brothers and sisters. It is late Thursday night. Jesus has left with the disciples after giving them their marching orders to love one another as he has loved them. They are going to undergo persecution, but as we saw last week, they've got to stick together because it's going to be hard. But you all have to be unified. You have to stick together. And now they go out, out of the golden gate, down across the valley up to the garden. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 18, verse 1. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. I want to take just a second to paint the scene a little bit here. Um, This band of soldiers is actually in the Greek called a cohort. It's a cohort of soldiers, which is actually one-tenth of a legion in the Roman army. Um, A legion is 5,000 men. This was not a small band of a few people coming to get Jesus. This was up to 500 men with lanterns and swords and torches. They would have seen them coming. It is a show of force. Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing that all would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that, had, uh, that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, good old Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain... And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. The, the story takes uh, a few turns from there. They lead him to Annas, which is the high priest Caiaphas' father. Um, Annas sends them on to Caiaphas, who they have a discussion. Okay, we're going to move forward with um, persecuting Jesus for his crimes and, and uh, making him pay for it. Then they go on to the governor. The night is beginning to turn to dawn. The the kids that the parents had tucked in the night before are getting up too early because it's the Passover and it's like Christmas. Normal life is happening all around. The sun is rising over the Mount of Olives. It's Friday. Verse 28, and they led Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. This is John being intentionally ironic. The Jewish leaders had no scruples about crucifying one who embodied the very reality to which the Passover was pointing in favor of keeping themselves moral, of capable of their own self-righteousness, of proving that they were not going to, that they were rule followers. And forgetting that they needed God to rescue them. Verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not dying, doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. 
the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of a death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters, entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to me about say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? This is the word of the Lord. What is truth? Sounds like a very postmodern thing for an old dude like Pilate to say, right? The postmodern person might say that truth is relative. What's true for you may or may not be true for me. Well, this, I assure you, is not what Pilate is getting at. Pilate's question is not even a question at all. In fact, it's a cynical statement against Jesus. He doesn't wait for or really care about Jesus' answer to the question, what is truth. He is just challenging Jesus because Jesus has just challenged Pilate and his authority. He's saying the people who know the truth, they listen to my voice, big boy. Since Pilate's beginning of his tenure in Jerusalem, he has been obsessed with the approval of both the Jews and Rome. That is according to Josephus, the great Jewish historian. He is obsessed with not stepping on the Jews' toes, as we see in this verses. You, you try them. You, you do that. But he's also obsessed with climbing the company ladder, if you will, wielding the power given to him by Rome effectively. In his first year of his appointment, he set up statues all around the city of Jerusalem to Caesar Augustus, just so that the Jews wouldn't doubt who was in power over them. Immediately, the Jewish leaders practically revolted, and so Pilate was like, oh, okay, never mind, I'm going to take those down, that's fine, we want you to like me, but we want to exercise our power of Rome as well. Pilate Y'all knows how to do the dance, if you know what I mean. He knows how to do the dance. He knows how to get what he wants. He knows how to keep and gain his power. So when Jesus' assertion as king, his followers listen to him, that's a threat to Pilate. It's a threat to the delicate balance that he's got here. It's a threat to the authority and approval by both the Jews and the Romans. So a statement, what is truth, is actually a statement that says essentially, oh yeah, Jesus, they listen to you. Jesus, is that true? Well, when you have the full force of Rome behind you, truth is relative. Truth, Jesus, 
is optional when you've got a legion at the ready. In light of my power, the whole passage is about power. The whole passage is about power and its evil intentions. And that should not surprise any of us. If we read our Bible, that's essentially the key theme of the Bible from the very beginning. Man wants power. He doesn't want to be beholden to God. And so he takes it on his own. And it's all about building a tower to Babel, right? We've talked about that many times. It's all about building our own kingdoms and about investing in ourselves and building ourselves up. So it's no wonder that this is the backdrop upon which the crucifixion and the resurrection is painted. Everyone here is trying to wield power. And in that quest, truth does pay a back seat often. So says Pilate, so says Caiaphas, so says Judas, and so says Peter also to a degree. They're all in a power play. In the 1970s, Vaclav Havel, the great writer and um, uh, former uh, soon-to-be prime minister in in the Czech Republic, wrote an essay called An Attempt to Live in Truth of the Power of the Powerless. That got him an extended time in prison. It was a critique of the totalitarian that had, totalitarianism that had sent Soviet troops into Prague to crush the reform known as the Prague Spring. Havel tells in this article of a grocery store owner who puts a sign in his wall, in his window of his grocery store, workers of the world unite. Basically throwing a bone to the communists. Hey, don't mess with me. I'm on y'all's side. It's cool here. Come get your groceries. He was both protecting himself from the power of the tanks that were running through the central square, but he was also trying to build his own kingdom too. Hey, I could take advantage of this situation. Here's the point. Havel said this guy didn't believe a a word of it. He was totally BSing everybody. This guy did not believe in communism at all. But the power that was at stake was more important to him than living in the truth. And so he chose to live in a lie for the sake of power. Protecting it, growing it. What is truth? Especially when power is at stake. You may think of current political leaders, both sides, it's not a political statement, Um, business leaders in our day that really work by this, right? They make truth subservient to power. Who cares if you tell lies as long as you get what you want? More pointed, are there things for you, brothers and sisters, that you have done or said that have made truth a victim of power in your life, the power that you want? Things you've done perhaps at work to get ahead, Um, things you've done to make yourself look better, massaging the truth, truth you've dodged, defended, blame shifted, right? We all have them. Is building our kingdom more important than living by the truth? That's really the question this text comes. Have you, have you got, ever gotten all Tanya Harding on a Nancy Kerrigan in your life, right? 
to be gossiped or undermined or taken a billy club <laughs> to a rival in order to get ahead. I, Tanya. I, Tanya. I, Pilate. I, Caiaphas. I, Judas. And yes, I, Peter, too. As mentioned, Pilate was obsessed with keeping power. Surely he had dreams of his own statues all over the city. His kingdom was too important for this upstart rebel named Jesus to go threatening it. I, Pilate. And then there was Caiaphas, too. You know, you know, Caiaphas, Pilate signed his checks, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, Pilate's predecessor hired and fired five different chief priests, whereas Pilate kept just the one, Mr. Senior Caiaphas, because Senior Caiaphas was good at scratching Pilate's back. I, I used to have a boss whose mantra was, it's your job to keep your boss's boss off your boss's back by any means possible. That's Caiaphas. Caiaphas is working for the man. He's trying to keep Pilate's boss off Pilate's back. And the same goes for Pilate. It seems Pilate, uh, Caiaphas is quite skillful at keeping his power going. I, Caiaphas. Then there's Judas with his lanterns and torches and weapons in verse 3, accoutrements of his own kingdom building. How powerful Judas must have felt, right, that night, uh, that early in the morning at the van of 500 men with swords and torches. Yes, I am the man, follow me. And then with a lying kiss, a lying kiss, I, Judas, too. Peter with his big bad sword, man, brave revolutionary Peter, protecting the power he had too. He had stocked, stoked, stocked so much of his reputation in following this Nazarene, right? And now here we are, we're going over the top and and it's stressful, and he's not about to let Jesus go down. And so he pulls out his sword, his reputation and power as at stake, and he resorts to worldly ways that says, might makes right. And it's a lie too. First Peter goes, but he'll be back. I, Peter, too. Admittedly, this is how the kingdom of, kingdoms of this world do work, right? Truth is often a victim of power. Uh, many lies have been told to elevate a platform. Many a predetermined election has been held under the guise of democracy. I, Putin. Much lip service has been given to the injustices of this world while protection for the perpetrators of those injustices goes on because their power is more important than truth. Right? And history, brothers and sisters, is littered with the corpses of rivals to kings of power of this world. And that's exactly what they think is going to bring an end to Jesus, too. Making him a corpse. This will, corpse, this will go away. This will all go away. Yeah, it'll be a kind of a crazy week. But this is all going to go away. He will be forgotten. 
Just let's get through it. But first, let's kill him. But, verse 36, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Oh, Jesus could have bested them in his, uh, at their own game. He could have wielded much earthly power. Don't understand his lack of definitive worldly might here as an inability to do so. Jesus tells Pilate, if, if his kingdom is, is of this world, then my servants, verse 36, would have been fighting. In the garden account in Matthew, it's amazing, after Peter goes all ninja on the guy, right? Um, what he does is he tells Peter, put your sword down. Says, do you not think I can appeal to my father, Peter, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Again, a legion is 5,000 men. What Jesus is saying is like, oh, these 500 people really bother you? I can bring 60,000 angels armed with lightning bolts against their dinky torches. Like that. Put your sword down. That's not the plan. He could have wielded much power, but he didn't. Instead, he went quietly to his own slaughter, wielding no other weapon but what? Truth. The Passover lamb is giving himself for his people. For Jesus, that truth is the power. What is truth? Jesus does actually answer that question in two important acts that are going to happen this week. Two important acts, not with words, but two acts. Two definitive truth statements in the next three days that will ring across the pages of history for all time and in all places. And for eternity too. The first statement is that of the cross, which is just minutes away now from Jesus. What truth does the cross convey to us? What truth should we ruminate on as we approach Good Friday? That our kingdoms, our worldly kingdoms, are wobbly at best. We felt that this week, didn't we? With the bomber. I wrote a little piece about that in a blog about that. and You can look at that if you'd like. But man... One of the things about this guy running around doing these random bombs is it shook our nerves. Because who's next? Where's it going to happen? All of our work in building up our kingdoms suddenly was called into question. Oh, no. Like in a moment, I, I, could, I could be expecting a book from Amazon and then I'm gone. My kingdom done. Right? cross says this is what you deserve you will die and you have a much bigger problem you have a much bigger problem you have a problem of the sin that causes that we think we have the cat by the tail building our kingdoms but it took a random dude from Pflugerville in evil to shake our kingdoms, didn't it? The cross confronts our pride, the original sin. It says it is what we deserve. 
Did you catch the interesting fact in verse 6 that when the soldiers found Jesus in the garden and he said to them, I am he, they all fell back and fell to the ground? Can you imagine that scene? This is a continuation of the theme in John of Jesus complaining, of, of him um, confessing his de- deity. The I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What he's basically saying is, you may be Tanya, but I, Yahweh. And by the power of those words, ego eimi, by the power of those words, he is reiterating all of redemptive history in which the Passover lamb was central to that. All of redemptive history, he is telling these people, you are witnessing the incarnation of God Almighty himself. And if you want to take me, let's go. Let's party, people. And what do they do? They say, okay. In their hubris, in their pride, they think that actually He may build his kingdom, but I can build my own too. The cross says, your kingdom is wobbly at best. That's the first truth that Jesus proclaims. The second truth is the truth of Easter, his resurrection. Death is not enough to stop him. He is Yahweh. I, Yahweh, yes, indeed. And so we must listen and follow his voice. Resurrection truth says that he will defeat death on our behalf and only he can do it. And it says the only kingdom really worth investing in is the one that will last, the one he is bringing. Think about it, brothers and sisters. Let's just be logical. Okay? Let's just be logical. If, if Jesus is the only king who can defeat death, if he is the one who can create an everlasting kingdom and all of our kingdoms will, will fall apart, just like they did for, for Judas, right? The, the others seem to say that actually at the time that we're reading this that morning, Judas is already on his way to slit his own throat. His kingdom lasted about five minutes. And Caiaphas would be deposed by the very boss that he's scratching his back a few years later. And and Pilate, too, he's got three more years until he goes back to Rome with his tail between his legs. All of our kingdoms, brothers and sisters, logically, rationally, if we are so bent on investing in ourselves and know that, brothers and sisters, they are but for a moment, but his kingdom is for an eternity, which, logically, are you going to invest in? Which are you going to align yourself to? That's the question that comes in our text. Only Peter of these would see the error and the folly of building his own kingdom. And we're going to talk a lot about uh, Peter on Easter. But I just want to apply this and then we'll be done. What do we do with these two truths? It's really important that we live in both of them at the same time. See, some of us tend to go to one or the other. Some of us either tend to live out of the cross, right? We tend to live out of oh, we, the, the, the whole we suck mindset, right? The self-loathing, I can never do anything, I'm a worthless human being, all of that stuff, right? So much of us are, are spent living in the comfort of our own cynicism about ourselves. And brothers and sisters... <laughs> That is believing a lie. 
Because Jesus came for you. Don't just swing to a cruciform truth that just says you are a dirtbag, because you're not. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, and God sent his son to die for you. And disregarding that is living a lie. The others of us tend to go in the other direction that basically says we can't, you know, we're totally cool. You know, we're totally, uh, we're totally great, right? We don't live in the reality of our sin. Oh, my gosh, that's so harsh to say about me that, that the cross is something I deserve. You know, Good Friday, we have a short day. Let's go play golf. For those of you, you need to sit in the pain the cross is super severe. And you need to sit in the reality that that really is what you deserve and that your kingdom really is wobbly and you need to go on Good Friday and you need to nail that pride and that hubris to that cross. You, Tanya. Me, Tanya, too. The truth is, they're both true. You are a sinner. And he is a savior. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time to dwell in the tension of your greatest act in the history of the world. pray that we will be changed by it this Easter. And all God's people said, Amen.